Welcome to City Road, I'm Dallas Rogers and today we're talking with Bradley Garrett about doomsday preppers and bunkers. So I guess my my point is that once I started thinking about these bunkers, I started seeing bunker architecture everywhere. And yes, it's related to COVID-19. Bradley Garrett is a cultural geographer based at University College Dublin. He has a new book coming out very soon called Bunker, The Architecture of Dread. And I'm breaking a cardinal rule of City Road podcast and speaking to him on Skype. So thanks so much for being on City Road. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, man. (laughs) Oh, excellent. That's a great compliment. So you've written this paper on doomsday preppers and the architecture of dread, and I absolutely want to get into the philosophy of the architecture of dread. But I guess the thing that stands out the most when you read this paper is right up at the front, you say that preppers consider COVID-19 to be a mid-level event. I guess you'd better start with who are these preppers and why is this a mid-level event? Okay, yeah. So the the preppers that I've spent the the past three, four years working with, they're they're preparing for a range of emergencies, calamities, disasters, and uh, what they call ELEs or extinction level events. So you can imagine their preparations on kind of a spectrum, right? Like on the low end, you've got the power's gone out for two or three days, and on the on the high end, you've got you know nuclear war or an asteroid is just slammed into the earth, you know? <laughs> so they're kind of, you know, depending on who I would talk to, they would give me a kind of different range of where they thought, what they were prepared to deal with. And often what they would tell me is that they weren't interested in preparing for high level events. So what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19 has been described to me by numerous preppers as a, as a mid-level event. And I would say eh, probably 50, 60% of them were prepared for this kind of, you know, three, four, five, six month (laughs) waiting period, holding pattern, whatever this is. But, you know, they could actually ramp it up a bit more, you know, if the, uh, if the supply lines were to go down and we didn't have trucks or grocery stores, they could handle that too. So the preppers that you talk to, are they currently in full activation mode? Uh, Man, it's been so interesting. I mean, interesting and horrifying to watch the things that I've been speculating on and hearing about and thinking about turn into concrete action in, in the course of the past five weeks. Yeah. You know, the, the, there's a big silo that I worked in, in Kansas. It has a 57 people hold up in there. It's kind of a, I don't know what to call it. I call it a geo scraper. It's like a 15 story inverted skyscraper. That's the one that I discussed in the article. Yeah. This, this is, this is the one that Larry Hall bought. You better talk us through this. I wanted to unpack this case study in a bit of detail. Yeah, suffice to say that, that a lot of the preppers had buttoned themselves up. And um, when I heard that the survival condo had buttoned up and people were inside, now that really, it unnerved me. So Larry Hall purchased an abandoned Atlas F missile silo in 2008 from the U.S. federal government. These missile silos, so basically you've got two kinds of of nuclear missile silos in the United States that would house an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, right? You've got the, the, the horizontal ones that would lift the missile, and then you've got the vertical ones where the missile is like ready to go. So those vertical ones are the Atlas F silos. 
And uh, after the Cold War, they decommissioned these. Larry Hall bought this thing from the federal government for $300,000. Um, I mean, it's just like pennies on the dollar. I think it cost $16 million to build the, the silo. And he built an inverted skyscraper inside the thing. It's 15 stories deep, which fi- still doesn't roll off the tongue. I want to say 15 stories tall, right? <laughs> it's 15 <laughs> stories deep. Um and it's kind of, you know, so you imagine, go into this thing, and it's just like a pillbox on a hill. You know, it's just like a grassy mound in the middle of a cornfield. And then you open up these these 16,000-pound nuclear blast doors, and you, you go into the parking garage at the top of this. And then you descend into the condo through kind of layers of security and medical wings, and then into the condos themselves, the residences, and then down into the bottom where you've got a cinema and food storage. The place is incredible. He's got a, a rock climbing wall in there, ping pong tables, a shooting range, uh, everything that you would need to distract people from the idea that the the world has uh, ended outside of the walls of the silo. So that's why I say when, when I found out that people had actually gone to the silo and buttoned up the doors, it actually it, it really unnerved me. So who are these people? Did people buy into this project? Yeah, they're so Hall fronted the money for the project. I think I think he spent 10 million renovating it and he's selling half floor condos for 1.5 million and full floor condos for 3 million. There is one resident in there uh who's a uh how much can I say about her? She's a, a resident of Manhattan with a considerable wealth who bought two stories and built a kind of two-floor condo in there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a huge buy-in to be able to get this kind mm. of safety. But it's a it's a turnkey solution, right? These are incredibly wealthy people who don't want to have to think too hard about what they're going to do in this situation. They just want Larry and his security team to handle it. And they want to have, yeah. you know, wine, they want to have entertainment, they want to have security at the gates, and they want to know that it's all taken care of. And that's that's what they've paid for. Yeah. So let's get into some of the ways you've been conceptualizing this that are, I find really fascinating. I've spent a little bit of time in China looking at the underground air raid bunkers that were built, you know, probably in the same kind of time period. But there's a kind of different geopolitics to what the fear and anxiety of that time to what's going on now. Absolutely. Um, the a lot of the preppers that I spoke to are building in the remains of the Cold War. So these are this is Cold War infrastructure that was constructed by the state and has now been abandoned since the Cold War ended. And I guess you've got you had a similar situation in Beijing, right? But it was sort of colonized there, as far as I understand. It was a kind of bottom up colonization. People moved into it because housing was too expensive and they just kind of made that space their own. Yep. Or they converted it into shopping centers and ice skating rinks and other things. Right. Okay. So, yeah, there is that private element. You know, essentially, yep. that's what's happening here is, you know, the, there's this budding private market of people who realize that. Uh, if the government had need for these spaces during the Cold War, then potentially the private market would have need for these spaces now. What's interesting to me is that there, you know, during the Cold War, it was a singular threat that people were responding to. It was nuclear war. And so the bunkers were built specifically for that emergency. But what preppers are thinking about now is a, is a kind of range of emergencies and also what they call the catastrophic ripple effect. 
this kind of like domino of things that, you know, the pandemic leads to infrastructural breakdown, leads to economic breakdown, leads to martial law, leads to anarchy, you know? It's kind of like a board game. Like you pick your disaster and then you follow it through to the to the logical end point. And so they're they're trying to prepare not just for that whole kind of range of of breakdown, but a range of breakdown across a range of disasters. So that's why I say it's kind of like a board game. You know, you imagine this thing, it's like a giant grid. And what was fascinating to me is that when I asked them what they were building for, often they said, we're building for the unknown, right? It's just, mm. a, it's just it, they were building on a kind of... Is, is, that what you, is that what you mean when you talk about objectless anxiety and this move from nuclear war and survivalism to something else? Yeah, yeah. So you can trace this back through literature. Like Freud describes it as a neurotic fear as opposed to real fear. It's a kind of fear of the unknown rather than fear of the actual. I actually like Kierkegaard's interpretation of it where he thinks about uh, the difference between anxiety and dread. So anxiety has an object, right? We, at we attach anxiety to something, whereas dread is this kind of, you know, amorphous <laughs> object that's mm. just floating around out there and we can't quite put boundaries around it. And we can't quite pinpoint what it is that's making us feel this way. And so when you're thinking about preparing for a speculative event, whether you're preparing for a specific anxiety or for a more, you know, amorphous sense of foreboding, you know, it's, it's a very different kind of preparation. And so I think that that is actually reflected in the architecture. And that, you know, I, I imagine this fascinated you as well, right? That like when you build a building for the unknown, you have to build in all of these... Uh, Con contingencies or something, aren't they? The contingencies are actually, they're physical, they're technical. You know, yeah. that's what I found so fascinating is that the, these buildings became incredibly technologically sophisticated. You know, they're engineered to an incredible degree because they don't know what they're building for necessarily. Mm. They almost have to have latent capacities that you don't even know how you will mobilize them. I, I just find this concept of the architecture of dread, which I think you're describing right now, just completely fascinating. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in how you take Cold War infrastructure and retrofit it into a piece of architecture of dread. Yeah, well, so so if you take a piece of, take a bunker, right? Take a Cold War bunker that was built by a government, by a state, and you you build this thing underground, you're thinking about ordinance. You know, what, what bomb could penetrate this thing? But then after you build it, you think, oh, well, you know, we might, we're going to put an air filter on it to filter out any fallout from radiation. But while you're building that, you might as well also put a biological filter on there and a chemical filter on there, right? So you, you already see in, in that state architecture, you already see this kind of speculation, you know, about whether there could be, you know, something beyond the nuclear and we're already building this space. So let's just build in these extra features. What's really interesting about the, the bunkers that the preppers are building is that they're thinking about redundancy. The bunkers are so massively over-engineered and overbuilt. You know, the, the survival condo, for instance, has three different power systems. So he's got solar panels, he's got wind turbines, and he's got diesel generators. And all of this is feeding into a battery backup system that is, it's the size of a room, right? This, ba this battery bank covers an entire wall in a room. So 
you know, there, and he told me when I asked him, you know, why do you need three different power systems? He said, because we're going to, if we're in here for five years, you know, the solar panels are going to get broken. The turbines are going to go down. Eventually we're going to be down to the diesel generators, but the redundancy was incredibly important. And having the, you know, technology plays a huge role in this, right? Like the, you couldn't have built these bunkers during the Cold War. We didn't have the technology available to build them. And so you kind of see, I, I don't know, I like to imagine them as like a future archaeologist coming back in a hundred years or a thousand years and seeing these structures and, and just imagining the kind of paranoia that would, um, you know, mm. enable you to over-engineer uh, a structure to such a degree. I. I really, I find that really fascinating. And I had originally thought about a disconnect between the Cold War and now. But I guess what you're saying in architectural and even ideological terms, there's almost a continuality to this. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, there was a kind of break. I mean, there was this period of ruination, right? Where, I mean, archaeology requires a certain amount of temporal distance, Think we have to be able to look back and think, well, suddenly this is now historical or it has heritage value or something, right? Mm. But then once we get to that point, then we realize the spaces are under threat. And then I think it triggers this kind of second wave of thinking, well, should we do something with it? So it just happened that, you know, the way that we had constructed our society to be so dependent upon uh, these fragile and complicated international supply lines, the the way that we understand that pandemics can spread through heavily urbanized populations. You know, all of that was kind of coming to fruition at the time that we were reassessing those ruins from the Cold War. Mm. So so it kind of, I mean, of course, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But like, I think <laughs> about it now and I think, well, of course that makes sense that you would look at an abandoned missile silo and think, well, if it's not a heritage site and we're not just going to, you know, encase it in concrete and forget about it, then what value does it have? And the value that is injected into that building is, it's a mirror on our society. I'm very, also very fascinated by the idea, kind of a dual idea, really, that we have these super rich people creating these spaces and that they will potentially, you know, if some prepping event occurred, they might live in there for five years. And kind of what would happen to that social structure inside the bunker. I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in the idea that preppers were previously considered a little bit, you know, kind of out there, but now all of a sudden they have a kind of legitimate means for having constructed these spaces, at least in their own head. What do you make of this kind of social dynamic that's, that comes to the fore at a moment like this? Well, I, I, I heard your um, podcast, I don't know, it was a couple episodes ago when you had Simon Marvin on and he was talking about cabin ecologies. Um, mm. and, and, you know, this is so fascinating because these bunkers are, are the epitome of this. Like, how do you build a space technically, how do you engineer a space that you can survive in, you know, whether that's for a month, three months, five years, whatever, you know, pick, take your temporal frame. Engineering that space is, is easier than it ever has been. And I think that's why a lot of us feel caught out by this moment. It's like, oh, you know, did we, we really expected that we were just going to be able to keep going to the grocery store and having, you know, on-demand delivery of all of our goods coming into ports and coming in on planes. I mean, it's kind of like, it's exposed the kind of magical thinking behind neoliberal systems, this, this whole situation. So I, I like thinking about the bunker as a kind of, almost a kind of protest against that 
very fragile modernity that we've built around us that we you know that we've come to depend on but it's also i think this crisis in particular has made us realize that you know we're all underprepared and we could have been better prepared and so we look to the preppers and what they've done in a material sense makes sense to us right like you know what might have seemed wacky as you say you know a year ago stockpiling two weeks of food in your house now seems kind of sensible right or toilet paper or water or whatever you know whatever people have pan- <laughs> I wasn't going to go there yeah, but you I know, did <laughs> I know whatever people have panic shopped out of the grocery store you know you like you'd like to have a supply of that but the more interesting question here is one that Rosalind Williams wrote in her amazing book about about the underground I think it was it was from uh, 2008 Notes on the Underground but she said you know the difficulty with thinking about underground living is not it's not the technical problems. It's not the engineering problems, right? It's the social, they're the social problems. How do you keep Mm. 57 people occupied and not killing each other over the course of three months or a year, you know? And, and, and again, this crisis has made that so clear to us that you can, you know, materially fantastic. You know, you could be in a a four bedroom house with an acre of land and you can have all the supplies you want. You're still going to strangle each other after three, after three months in the house together. You know, that's the dual kind of meaning of the architecture of dread, really like try living in there for five years with like 50 other super rich people. I I reckon that's kind of an experiment. That's a a big brother experiment on a different level. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But the other thing to think about here is, is the, I mean, I, I keep coming back to the temporality of the bunker, right? Because you thinking about it in terms of the space uh, or in material terms doesn't really make that much sense, but thinking about the, the bunker in terms of time makes a lot of sense because then, because that encapsulates the resources that are inside that bunker that encapsulates the kind of social dynamic that you need to build. But importantly, you have to have an endpoint on that, right? The thing that's driving all of us nuts right now is that we don't know when this is going to end. Like, you know, if they, if they said to us, Hey, look, you know, yeah, sorry, this sucks. But on June 1st, everyone can go back to normal. (laughs) Then, Mm. then we would be able to deal with it. So it's uh, one of the bunker builders, uh, another guy in California, Robert Vecino, who's got a couple of, of uh, bunkers across the United States. He said to me, you have to think about it like a, like a submarine. You know, if we're, if we're going down, we're going to go underwater. We're on a journey. And that journey has to have an endpoint. And if you don't give people an endpoint, they're going to go nuts, right? Because, mm. you know, potentially that journey is going on forever. Potentially they're going to die in there, whatever. So... I know Simon Marvin had looked at these these studies from the Cold War where they, they locked people in fallout shelters. And the problem with all those studies is that they told everyone when it was going to be over. So yeah, if you, mm. if you tell people, yeah, we're going to lock you in this thing for 14 days, please cooperate and here's your food that you need to ration and then you put someone in charge of the situation, yeah, you know, you make it through that fine. But if you tell people... We're locking this door and you're going to have no idea what's going on outside of it. And we may or may not open it again. Uh, 14 days suddenly becomes eons. Yeah, crazy. I'm really interested where, where you think this is going. So you've got a book coming out. Kind of what's the kind of last chapter of your book? That, that's a different question today, maybe, than when you submitted the proofs um, a few months ago. But uh, Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, like the, it, was, it was hard not to fall into the trap of just thinking about practicalities, because there's a lot we can learn in practical terms from these preppers. What I'm much more interested in is 
what does prepping tell us about the way that we're living? As I said earlier, it's a kind of, you know, these bunkers are a mirror on, on our society. That we've, that we've gotten to the point that people feel that, that the social safety net is so lacking that they have to invest all of their disposable income into building a piece of architecture that will protect them from what they see as an inevitable crisis is an absolute failure of, of the entire social system, in my mind. And one of the things that, I've, that I, I couldn't help but think about was how this architecture of dread has started to bleed into everything. So I'll, I'll give you a practical example. Um, one of the responses to the school shootings that have been taking place in the United States over the past decade now, I guess, since uh, uh, Columbine, mass shootings and school shootings, one of the responses to that is to harden the architecture of the schools. So har hardened architecture is a kind of another name for building a bunker, right? <laughs> So so the Trump administration, rather than going to the root of the problem and trying to figure out why, you know, why people are having psychotic episodes and, and becoming so depressed that they go on shooting sprees, their uh, solution instead is to create a huge grant system that goes to private companies who then go into schools and they make them, they shooter proof the schools. So they install bulletproof doors and glass uh, they make front desks that can be used as shields. They put in traps. So if it, like, you know, a two door system where if someone goes in one door, they can sort of lock the person in there. Uh, there was one school in Oklahoma that even installed giant steel bunkers in the corner of the classroom. I mean, can you can you imagine being a 12 year old kid sitting in class and there's like a steel bunker just waiting for you to climb inside when the shooter gets there? Um, mm. You know, like this. So I guess my my point is that once I started thinking about these bunkers, I started seeing bunker architecture everywhere in the yeah. in the vehicles that we drive, in the new buildings that we're building, in the in the millionaire basements in London that people are burying. You know, it's it's just all around us, and it's one of those things that kind of it's so insidious because it's creeping. You know, it just kind of it just kind of creeps into our consciousness slowly, and then. You know, it takes hindsight to look at it and suddenly realize that we've entered a new phase of kind of like super paranoid architecture. And I think that those bunkers were the canary in the coal mine and are, and that's why they're they're worth studying. Bradley Garrett, it's been so good having you on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Dallas. I really appreciate it, man. Bradley Garrett's new book, Bunker, The Architecture of Dread, is out very soon. Bradley also has a new paper out in GeoForum called Doomsday Preppers and the Architecture of Dread. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is City Road. See you next time. <laughs>